Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look! he said to his people. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pitam and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their life bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. And if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boy live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river banks. 
she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who are you, ruler or judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why are you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So you keep that open. And let me pray. Father, thank you. There's that passage ended. We're reminded you see and hear and are concerned for your people, concerned for us. We know that's true now. And our longing is that we might see you and hear you and know you better. So please open our eyes and ears. Please 
speak to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let not the strong boast of their strength. Let not the rich boast of their riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. It's no more precious thing, no more important thing for any of us here than to know God, to know the Lord. And if that's your heart's desire, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, actually, if you want to know God, there is no better book to turn to than the book of Exodus, which we're going to be looking at over this course this term. The whole book is answering the question, who is the Lord? It tells of a God who wants us to know him. He wants the world to know him. And throughout the book, he is helping us know him. He's showing us what he's like, what it means for him to be the Lord. It tells us of a God who saves his people out of terrible slavery that they might serve him and know him. Just heard how it begins with the Israelites, slaves of Pharaoh, building store cities for him to keep his wealth, not for their benefit. The book's going to end with these same Israelites building a tabernacle for the Lord, that he might dwell in their midst, that, they, that he might, as it were, share his wealth and abundance with them, that they would know his blessing, saving them out of slavery for relationship. So this great book is not simply a, a great story of redemption. It is the great story of redemption, the Bible says. It's the, the pattern, the blueprint for how and why God saves. It's the blueprint for the redemption that was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. So this ancient story isn't simply the story that helps a Jew understand who they are. No, this does that in part, but this story helps us understand our own story now as believers. All of us once were slaves actually facing a far more terrible and brutal and hopeless slavery, even than the one described here, slaves of sin and death. And wonderfully, we've been redeemed, that we might not simply know God in our midst, in a tent or in a building, more wonderfully than that, Paul says succinctly, that we might know Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what this book is about. If the book as a whole is answering the question, who is the Lord? Actually, the question raised by these opening couple of chapters really is, where is the Lord? His name that dominates the book, his name, the Lord, is not mentioned once in these opening chapters. Just a few references to God. He's going to make his entrance onto the stage in our next chapter we'll look at next week, chapter 3. But for now, 
he's, as it were, out of sight, largely. He's going to be the, very much the main character in this story. But as the drama begins, first of all, we're introduced to two other characters, the Israelites and Moses, God's people and God's deliverer. And so we're going to see how each is introduced to us. Chapter 1, we're introduced to the Israelites. Chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses. And then we're going to close by returning, in a sense, to that question, where is the Lord? And think how this chapter shows us how we're to live now by faith when God seems to be hiding, when God seems to be absent, when God seems to be twiddling his thumbs, doing nothing to help. Okay? First then, the, the Israelites, chapter 1. And two themes run through this chapter, entwined together. They're blessing and bitterness. Israel doesn't feel blessed, no doubt. They'd suffered terribly. God, perhaps, it seemed, had forgotten them utterly. But actually, the writer wants us to see and to notice that there is blessing going on amidst the, the bitterness. Often I think we're tempted to think both can't be true. If I'm being blessed, well, surely there will be no bitterness in my life. All will be good. All will be going well. And if life is bitter for me at the moment, then we're tempted to think, well, I'm not blessed at the moment. God has forgotten me, perhaps. And the writer helpfully shows us, no, both are true at the same time. He begins by speaking of blessing. Look on to verse, verse 7. Verse 7 says the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Sort of piling up the, the verbs to describe this growth in number. You might think, why does that speak of blessing? The word blessing isn't used. But as the book begins, it's made very clear this is part of an ongoing story. Actually, the first word that isn't actually translated, but the first word in the original is the word and. I was taught at school never to begin a sentence with the word and, and it's really rather odd to begin a, a book with the word and. But in various ways, the writer in those opening verses ties this story back to the previous one, the story of Genesis. And we do understand this is part of an ongoing story. Back in Genesis, God had told an old man with a very old wife, way past childbearing age, he said, look up, look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. Amazing promise. God had said, I will bless you, and through you all nations, the whole world will be blessed. Actually, Genesis begins by telling us how at creation, God's purpose was that the whole world would know and enjoy his blessing. And then it explains how creation actually came under his curse because of sin. And then God said he would bless Abraham's family, and through them, bless again all nations. And that blessing would in part be that he would make this family, it seemed very unlikely there would be any ongoing family, but he said, I'm going to make you into a great 
nation. And as this book opens, we see a family that has now become, by the end of Genesis, a family of 70. They're um, essentially economic um, migrants now in Egypt, where they've, they've gone. And yet, as at those opening verses, we see them multiplying more and more. As the first human couple in Genesis were told to go forth and multiply and fill the land, well, so this family now are multiplying and filling the land. And we're to hear that as a sign of God's blessing coming upon them. But then, verse 8, we read of a new king, a new pharaoh, probably a, a, a new dynasty, a new dynasty that's not beholden to Joseph. Joseph means nothing to them. Now, perhaps this new dynasty wants to unite the nation, and we're doing what politicians all too often do still, try and raise up some idea of an enemy within that the nation might focus on. Fear of the immigrant, xenophobic hatred, that it seems is his tactic. And so what had been a place of refuge for Abraham's family now becomes a prison. They're made slaves. And when we hear that word slavery, rightly, inevitably, perhaps, we, we think of the appalling, shameful uh, happenings in the transatlantic slave trade uh, a century or well, more than a few centuries ago. Actually, we remember that, terrible though it was, wasn't unique. Perhaps as many slaves were trafficked from East Africa to, to Asia, and actually in the world today, there are many more slaves than there ever were at the time of the height of the transatlantic slave trade. Slave continue, slavery continues to be a horrible blight. And, of course, it can vary in its degree of cruelty, but we're to understand that this slavery under Pharaoh was brutal and horrible. Verse 14 it says, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And yet even as their lives are made more bitter, we're told God is blessing them. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Very often in church history, God has used oppression and persecution actually to be a means of him multiplying his people, growing the church. But the bitterness got worse. Not just cruelty, but killing. Killing every male Hebrew child. And to begin with, it seems maybe this um, genocide through infanticide was perhaps some kind of covert policy. It wasn't being sort of publicly declared and acknowledged. He just calls in the midwives and issues his instructions to kill the boys. But we read verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. We'll think more about the midwives and their 
civil disobedience later. But Pharaoh isn't impressed. He summons them back. And sometimes people worry, did they lie to Pharaoh? Is it okay sometimes to tell lies? My own hunch is, it's not so much a lie. It's, it's answering a fool according to his followers. Nice to hear one or two chuckles as verse 19, their reply was mentioned. I think that's probably right. Answering a fool according to his folly. And certainly God honors them. It's striking. These two midwives are named in verse 15, Shifra and Puah. We're not told Pharaoh's name. He's just another Pharaoh, one of a number. We needn't remember which one. But these two were to be remembered. They're honored. And God blesses them. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Israel continues to grow. These two are blessed with families of their own. This blessing, but again, life becomes yet more bitter. Pharaoh now makes his, his policy public. He enlists the support of the whole nation. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. The Israelites were not feeling very blessed at that point. I guess they were thinking, where is God? Why doesn't he do anything? But actually, we're to understand, he is. Actually, he is fulfilling his promises. There is blessing as well as bitterness. And I guess many of us know that is often the way in our own lives. Bitterness and blessing. Sometimes it's hard to see the blessing. All we see is the bitterness. But God has promised in all things, even the bitter things, he is working for the good, for the blessing of those who love him. Maybe you're in the midst of bitter times now. Just a reminder to trust, to look for God's blessing in the midst of it. Well, that's chapter one, introduced to God's people. Now, chapter two, we're introduced to God's deliverer, Moses. Moses is going to be the sort of key human figure in this book. In, in lots of ways, he's a key figure in the whole Bible. But actually, in, in some ways, in these opening chapters, I think the writer especially wants us to notice the women as key players here, those midwives in chapter one. Um, that Pharaoh was trying to deal shrewdly with the Israelites and they make a fool of him, actually. He's outwinked, outwitted rather here too by uh, Moses' mother and sister. Even his own daughter, the princess, makes uh, a fool of him. Often in the Bible, actually, women, women of faith, Women of courage are the key to the next bit of the story. Think of Ruth or Hannah or Mary. And I think it's, it's true here too. As the chapter opens, I guess we're to imagine every Israelite couple praying for daughters. That's what they long for. And yet we read of Moses' mother, verse 2, she became pregnant 
and gave birth to a son. It should be a wonderful moment. You can imagine alarm, shock, horror. Oh no, a boy. Might well have been the reaction. But it goes on. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. A rather odd thing. Um, I don't think we'd have think that if he'd been ugly, she'd have chucked him to the crocs in the Nile. I think that's the point. Every mother thinks their child is, is, is fine. The word actually is the word good. And there's, there's lots of echoes of Genesis in, in the start of this book. And it's the word good is the word used of God at creation in Genesis chapter 1 when he saw what he'd made. And he says it was good. It was very good. It perfectly fulfilled his purpose. Maybe that's kind of the sense that Moses' mother had some sense that this child, this boy, in some way would fulfill God's good purposes. She saw him as no ordinary child. That's how Stephen puts it in, in his speech in Acts chapter 7. So anyway, she hides him for three months. That must have been a pretty awkward, stressful time for her and the family. But then when she feels she can do that no longer, she gets a basket, lines it with pitch, and floats it among the reeds in the Nile. Sort of keeping the letter of the law. Put your baby boys in the Nile. but Not really keeping the spirit of the law, of course. And you might wonder, what is, what is she hoping for? as she does that. And it's not made clear. Although that word that's used for the basket is the word, the only other place it's used is in the story of Noah. It's the word our footnote tells us is, is, is used of the ark. So maybe there is just some sense in that word being chosen that she was hoping, trusting that this basket might be a means by which this child would be kept safe amidst the waters of death. How that would happen, it seems they don't know. The sister watches to see what is going to happen. And she sees Pharaoh's daughter come to take a bath. She sees the basket, hears the crying, and we're told, uh, verse 6, she felt sorry for him. I think we're to understand that very clearly as a godly response. At the end of a chapter, we're told of how God sees and hears and is concerned. So this princess isn't just thinking, oh, good, a baby. I'd like one of those. I think we're to recognize real compassion in what she did for this Hebrew child. Moses' sister then uh, bravely interrupts, verse 7, and says, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And then with wonderful irony, Moses' mother is paid to look after her own child, out of Pharaoh's purse, essentially. So Moses, in his early years, is brought up in an Israelite home with his Hebrew parents, and then once older, raised with all the privilege and education and wealth of the palace and raised there by an adopted mother who I think had real sympathy, we do understand, for the Israelites. That terribly evil decree that Pharaoh had made, wonderfully God used 
to bring Moses into the palace to help prepare and shape him. Then we, we have to jump on 40 years later, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Maybe looking each way with a sign he didn't want anyone to see. Although I half suspect as a prince, he could pretty much do what he wanted and throw his weight around and get away with it. And it may be the phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible of how God is looking to see if anyone would, would do anything. Maybe that was the sense. He was looking to see if anyone would step in and correct this injustice. And when no one does, Moses chooses to do so. He'd have to kill a lot of Egyptians if he's going to rescue the people that way. It's not a wise thing that he does, but I think we're to see it does reveal something of his character. He's someone who sees and cares for his people. He's someone who cares about justice. And it seems it was for him an important moment of choice as to who he would identify with. But for all that, his own people reject him. And Pharaoh is turned against him. And it seems Pharaoh must have recognized this, this wasn't just one of the princes stepping out of line. There's no sort of slap on the wrist. Pharaoh wants to kill him. Pharaoh seems to have recognized that what Moses did indicated a serious choice on his part. And Moses is forced to flee to Midian, where he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life. And no doubt he felt he'd uh, blown it. He'd failed. Actually, we'll see. God was shaping him still, preparing him for what he would do. When he gets to Midian, there's another opportunity to show his compassion and his justice, and this time his rescue is rather more appreciated. He gets a meal out of it, and then a home, and a wife, and a son. He marries Zipporah. Verse 22, we read, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Names are significant. Here's a clue as to how Moses is thinking about himself, who he thinks he is. He's saying, this is not my home. Actually, the sense might, might be, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. And he's saying, Egypt isn't my home either. The sense is, he's beginning to understand himself in the light of God's promises to Abraham back in Genesis. He's going to settle down in Midian for the next 40 years. But his son is a reminder that this, these people are wonderful and kind that they've been. These people are not my people. And this is not my home. God has seemed to be hiding in this chapter up to this point. There's no mention of his name. There's no miracles going on. And yet we are to see and notice God is wonderfully at work, God is shaping his man. 
God doesn't seem to be much of a rush, does he? I mean, he's 80 by the time the chapter ends. It's a reminder, we octogenarians here, I'm looking nowhere in particular, but uh, God may still be shaping you, preparing you for work he wants to do in you still. Patiently, faithfully, God is fulfilling his purposes in us and for us. Now I said God is very much going to be the main character in this book. Properly introduced in the next chapter, as we'll see next week, then he's going to step onto the stage in a rather dramatic fashion. But we're prepared for that in the final verses of our chapter. Let me read from verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. When it says he remembered his covenant, it's not that he'd forgotten the page. He didn't suddenly think, gosh, I've been dozing. What, what, I, all those years ago, I made a promise. And I haven't been looking. What's happened to my people in that time? It's not that at all. When it says he remembers his covenant, it means now he's going to act to fulfill it. He's been working all the time, unseen. But now he's about to step onto the stage, as we'll see next time. As we finish, I, I just want to notice a few lessons from these two chapters, though, about he, how we are to live, how we are to respond when God seems to be doing nothing, when God seems to be hiding, when God seems to be absent. How should we respond when life is bitter, when life is hard, when there's disappointment and failure, when we feel we've blown it? What does faith look like in these two chapters? And I just want to pick out some letters from the midwives, um, from Moses, and from the Israelites. The midwives, first of all, just um, look back. Chapter 1, Moses orders them to kill the boys, and they disobeyed. And we're told why. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. as They did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. I guess they were pretty terrified of Pharaoh. He was a very powerful man. He was a murderous despot. Pretty terrified of him. And yet, we're told, they feared God, feared God more. Not that they were terrified of him. The meaning is that he was the weightier reality for them. He was the one they were more mindful of, more concerned to please. Later in the book, when the plagues are happening and all these miracles and so on, it would have been obvious to fear God, not Pharaoh. It was obvious who was the more powerful. But here, God seems to be hiding. It must have been very hard. And for us, it's often hard. When in our world, other powers seem to be more impressive, more important, more significant and obvious. And we should learn from them to fear God. Make him the one we seek to please. Make him 
the ultimate reality in our life. That's what we're to do. Fear God. Second thing uh, faith does, we learn from Moses. The fact that the Israelites didn't appreciate his killing of the Egyptian doesn't necessarily mean it was a wrong thing he did. In God's providence, it wasn't yet the time, and that was not to be the way. But the New Testament painted in some ways as, as, a, as a positive thing what he did. It was an important moment of decision for Moses. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 11. We read this, 12, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So up to this point, Moses was like some of you. Dual citizenship, two passports he could have had. And the Egyptian passport was definitely the more useful one. That would open way more doors. That would have made life a whole lot easier. But this moment was the time when he chose to identify with God's people. Why did he do it? Well, we're told, the writer of Hebrews says, because he was looking ahead to his reward. There'd have been lots of rewards with his Egyptian passport, but the treasures of the palace are as nothing to the promises of God for his people. So by faith, he chose to identify with God's people. It was a costly choice, but that is the choice we need to make too. Moses had to weigh up. Who are my people, actually? Where is my home? What am I going to live for? And he chose to line up with God's people, which at the time would have seemed a bonkers choice, but of course, as we read on in the book, we'll see it was a great choice, the right choice. And so it is for us, but faith lines up with God's people, what it means to us. Lastly, the Israelites, verse 23 of chapter 2, we read, during that long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. What else does faith do in hard times when life is bitter? And when, if anything, things seem to be getting worse, not better. What does faith do? Faith cries out to the God who does hear, the God who does see, the God who knows and cares and whose promises will never fail. We've sung, actually, one of our songs. And, and the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, that for us, we groan still in these days, as they did. Us too, we have to wait. We have to trust God's promises. But as we do, we are to cry out to him by faith. And for some of you here, I suspect those final verses are verses you particularly need to take away with you. God maybe seems to be hiding 
God seems to be doing nothing. Life may be very bitter and hard at the moment. And yet you don't know, God sees. God hears. His timing may well baffle us, but he hears our cry and his promises will never fail. Let me pray. Father, please give us faith like that when life for us is bitter. Give us the faith that we'll expect and look for blessing because we know you care. Give us the faith that would fear you, not the world around us. The faith that will unashamedly line up with your people. The faith that would cry out in our despair. Help us grow in that, please. For your name's sake. Amen.